0: Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? Well, I can testify that what Christ-centered preaching is meant to do is to impart God's faith to God's people. And I can testify this morning that that's what God's Word preached has done for me. Last week, Pastor Blair was preaching on God's promises and applying that passage to our hearts. And he made several statements that the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that was speaking right to my circumstance. And it was such an encouragement that God used to put faith in my own heart. He said, when you face an uncertain future, you can trust that God's power and God's grace is sufficient. His promises are sure. Therefore, when God says he loves you, He will not let you go, and you can trust Him. But when He puts it in your heart to give your life to Him and to step out in faith and to plant a new church, you need that type of comfort because it's moving outside of the security that you've once known. And the question really comes down to, do I trust Him? When He says it's not time to hoard what you've come to know and love, but it's time to herald what you know to be true. I can trust Him. He's got me. He's got us. That's what biblical preaching is meant to do. To move us, to align ourselves to His will and the call of God upon our lives. To walk by faith and experience His faithfulness. And that's What should be happening in our hearts as we walk through the exposition of the Scriptures. That's God's purpose as we walk through Genesis, is to build faith into His people. God demonstrating His faithfulness through keeping His promises. And I pray, like me, every week, that your faith is strengthened as a result of the preaching of God's Word. And you are constantly in the process of aligning your will to His, walking by faith, watching him show himself strong. Well, that is what he's doing throughout all the pages of the Scripture, and the point of the passage we're going to look at today. The sermon in a sentence that I have for you is, God is faithful, and God is glorified when his people walk by faith and experience his faithfulness that leads them to worship. And that's what we're going to be unpacking here today, and that's what He's doing in every one of our lives. I invite you to return in the Bible there to Matthew chapter 14, the text that was read just earlier. Matthew chapter 14, we'll be covering verses 22 to 33. I invite you to join me in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have had the opportunity to be able to worship You. You are our mighty fortress a bulwark, ever standing strong and true. And we are to find our refuge in you. And Lord, we do declare this morning that you are faithful. And we pray, Father, for these moments now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide to direct us to that truth, that you would open up our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, so that we may see you for who you are. Father, what a precious portion of the Scripture that we come to as we see the works of your precious Son, Jesus. So, Lord, for these moments, I pray that we would draw close to you, we would gaze and behold his glory, and we would ask your Holy Spirit to have his way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are many standout walks in the Scripture. Noah as he walks up to that first tree to cut it down, to build his giant zoo ship. Abraham, as he leaves his hometown to be able to go and to follow, not knowing where he is going. Abraham's walk up a mountain to sacrifice his only son, his son of promise. Moses' walk, leading the people of Israel out of captivity, walking them up to the obstacle of the Red Sea, and then only to watch God make a way through the Red Sea for them to walk. Joshua's walk around Jericho, David's walk up to Goliath, Daniel walking into the lion's den. Then the New Testament walks, Joseph and Mary's walk to Bethlehem, John the Baptist, as he walks in the wilderness preaching repentance, the disciples walk as they listen to the call of Jesus and walk away from everything that they know. And maybe one of the most memorable walks which we unpack here in Scripture, is Peter's walk on the water. This palace this all these walks have something in common, and these walks of faith and what is amazing is that how God uses those walks of faith to lead us to Him, to worship Him. That's what He's doing. He's leading us in a walk of faith to the destination, and the destination is Himself. To know who He is and what He's doing. I want you to think about that and hold that in your heart as as we walk through this passage this morning. Your walk of faith that God has you on right now is leading you to Him. This passage illustrates well Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel, which is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was indeed our God and worthy of worship. So, the outline defined for you that I have on your handout, if you want to take a look at that, is we want to see the faithfulness of God as Jesus directs His followers, He prays for His disciples. He refines them through this trial, and then he upholds them with his love and strength and shows what happens when his disciples realize that. So, we're going to begin there in verse 22. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Excuse me. That immediately, that time indicator is very important for us to be able to understand. And it's difficult when you parachute into a passage. You've got to do a little background and set up. So I want to be able to do that for you right here in this moment. Jesus has just asked the disciples to get into the boat and go ahead to him to the other side. And it's right on the heels of him feeding the 5,000. A significant moment in the book, you'll remember. It was a high point for the disciples because they were the ones that got to share in the miracle. And it was a significant moment for the crowds. John says, in his account of this, describing it, he says, when the people saw Jesus feed them with all all, all that they wanted and they were satisfied, they were so delighted and so excited. It says that this is indeed the prophet who was coming into the world, they chanted, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself to pray. This is something that we see often as you walk through the Gospels. You'll see this rhythm of Jesus where he gets away to commune with the Father. And it's a beautiful rhythm and it's instructive for us. But the text says it was at this moment, at this high point, where Jesus has done this miracle and the people are ready to hail him and put him forth as their king. The disciples must have sensed the victory in the air. But Jesus stops and right then, as sensing this was about to happen, he pushes pause on that and he says, I want you guys to be able to get and go to the other side of the sea. Startling why does he make them go i get the idea here that they didn't want to go but he sends them and i've just marinating on this passage thinking about what was going on in the life and the minds of the disciples at this moment why did jesus send them away well maybe it was to protect them from the pride of themselves and the temptation to be swayed by the crowd This was a prime opportunity for their kingdom to be realized. They had already been following him for some two years already now. And they've listened to his teaching. They've seen the miracles. They've watched him do all that. And more and more people are starting to follow. And you can see the momentum. Their movement is gaining. And now the crowd has just been fed. The crowd has been satisfied. And here it is. They're ready to make him king. And Jesus says, go. He sends them to the other side Why he dismissed the crowds. What a moment to walk away. Where Where has he got to go? Why hurry off? Well, Jesus perceiving what they were about to do, recognized that they were going to take him by force to make him king, and it wasn't his time yet. He had a mission to fulfill. So he chooses to fulfill the mission. And he goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. The text says in verse 23 that he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Can you imagine that moment in the life of Jesus? I wonder if this could have been one of those moments that was a temptation for Jesus to receive the recognition that he rightly deserves. Thankfully, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, right? And he humbled himself to the will of the Father to the point of even humbling himself to be able to go to the cross to pay the ultimate sacrifice for yours and my sins. Here we see in this passage, Jesus get away to commune with the Father and we see his humanity. As you're going through the Bible and studying the Scripture, those are questions that need to come out out, out of you. How does this passage that I'm looking at demonstrate the character of God? What is Jesus showing forth? And one of the things that He's showing forth right here is His humanity. The Scripture says in Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every way was tempted like we are, yet without sin. I see in this prayer, this is a sweet prayer, and it's not a short prayer. He's there for hours, and we know that because verse 23 says, when evening came, which about dusk, he was there alone praying, and he didn't come walking on the water until the fourth watch that it says in verse 25, which according to the Roman way of keeping law, That would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. So he's praying up there on the mountain by himself from about 6 p.m. to about 3 a.m. Communing with the Father. I don't know if you've had those moments in your life where the Lord wakes you up to commune with him, but there's sweet times of prayer. And God can realign your will to his in those moments. If you sense his prompting, I encourage you to lean in. Jesus does that in this moment. So what is he praying for? Well, if he's sensing in temptation, then I, he's probably pleading with the Father. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me. And he's praying for himself, expressing his desire probably to be with the Father, and dependence upon him to have strength to carry on his mission. He's also probably praying for his disciples, because that's what he does. He prays for his disciples in John 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one, that they will overcome with victory the same temptation he had just overcome, not to follow the mood of the mob or the shallow popularity. So Jesus is praying for them. In Luke 22, he said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you. But Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's a great example of what Jesus is doing. That is the high priestly work of our Jesus, that he is praying for us even now. Listen to that, believer. Whatever your walk of faith, wherever you're at right now, and the struggle that you're enduring, and this life that we're going through, You're not alone, and Jesus is praying for you. And that should be a great comfort for us. Verse uh, Hebrews 7 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So He's there in prayer while His beloved disciples are in a rowboat going against the wind. A long way from land, the text says, beaten by the waves. Anybody else have a little bit of difficulty with that? Jesus is up on the mountain by himself praying. He sends the disciples out. Now he know he's all sovereign. He's all he's all knowing, and he sends the disciples up out in a situation where there is a wind that is against them. It is one thing if you've got Jesus in your boat even if he is asleep on a cushion like he was earlier in Matthew. But this is not one of those times. They're all alone. And he's the one who sent you out. Why would he do such a thing? And here's point number three in your outline. He refines us. And he is in the process of refining you and me when he sends us out. The Apostle John in his gospel describes the conditions on the sea that Jesus directs them on as rough because of the strong wind blowing. In Mark's account, he says that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And then there in verse 24 here in Matthew, it says the boat was being beaten by the waves. Elsewhere, the same word translated is translated as tormented. For the disciples, this journey was a toilsome journey, not exactly a storm that was described earlier on in Matthew's account. That was a storm where the waves were breaking into the boat. This is a journey that they're on and it is toilsome. They are getting nowhere. They're trying to follow God's command. They're following Jesus and saying, we got more ministry to do, I want you to go. Yet they're at the middle of the sea and they're getting nowhere. They're exhausted. They're ready to give up. This journey was exhausting, rowing against the wind and making no progress. Anybody been there? When you're following God, you know that you're following God, He has led you, and you feel like you're going nowhere. And life becomes exhausting and fatiguing and wearisome, and you don't know that you can go on. Well, they're just trying to be obedient. Why the hardship? That's the question I think about. Why the hardship? That question should hit us as we work through the text. If you believe that Jesus was God, and we do, then you know that He is right where He wants them to be. Right? He is right where He wants them to be. Rowing this boat against the wind in obedience is a picture of our walking by faith. Sometimes it feels like that, that we're going against the culture, against the current, and we feel like we're getting nowhere. It's in those moments that you need to remember that He is sovereign. He is directing, He is praying, and He's refining you. He's in control. And it's in those moments when you don't know what to do and you're at the end of your rope, you have to trust and obey. Just as we learned last week, as Pastor Blair was preaching the word, that was the the word that I listened to. His promises are sure. You can depend upon him. You can trust in him. He will uphold you. Trust and obey day by day and only one day at a time. That was a phrase that my brother and I decided to put on my dad's headstone because it was something that he drilled into us, especially during those last months as he was suffering and enduring the cancer that he had. Boys, and he tell them, Mom, it's going to be okay. Trust and obey day by day and only one day at a time. God's got you. That's what you do when you're going through a struggle. That's what you do when you're suffering. I want you to listen to this quote. When a believer is in the place of obedience, no matter how severe the struggle or the storm, he is as safe as he were at home in his own bed. Because the place of security is not the place of proper circumstances or even desirable circumstances. The place of security and safety for the believer is in the place of obedience to the Lord. So, how does he reveal himself? And when does he do it? Let's pick back up in verse 25. <clears throat> it says, In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Now, you could stop right there and go, Okay, he came to them. He came to them. And you need to hear that in those moments when you are lost and are undone, Jesus comes to you. He comes to you in their distress, and we see his love and compassion. That's another thing that you see in his character. When you go through the trials and the difficulties and those toilsome journeys, he comes to you, and he shows you love and compassion, and he leads you. But look at this. He didn't come, check this out, until the fourth watch, the last watch of the night. It's interesting, isn't it? Why not come a little earlier, you know? Why not a little sooner, right? Why wait to the last? Why do we have to endure hours of torment before you come? Why do we have to endure days and days and days of suffering before you reveal yourself to us? Have you experienced this in your life? Have you ever asked God how long? I have. How long, O Lord, do I have to endure? How long do we have to go through this situation? When will the darkness lift? Well, it's not like often passages in the Psalms. Psalm 10 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, you're never around when I need you. Don't you care? The psalmist is not afraid to be able to cry out to God for questions And it's instructed to us in those moments. When you don't know what's going on, you are to cry out, God, where are you? You're to turn your attention and lament to him. Then there's Psalm 44. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping? Oh, Lord, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you seem to hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression for our soul was bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground? Rise up, O Lord, come unto our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how you pray in those moments. You go to God and you turn to Him. You cry out to Him and you depend on His steadfast love and His faithfulness because you got to know that He's got you and He's leading you to Himself. It's not our, unlike our response to God. How can you let me go through this? Don't you see me? Well, He does. Let me be assured. Let me assure you. He not only sees, He directs. He allows these situations to come to you. And He's praying for you in the midst of the struggle, and He's refining you. And as you struggle to follow Christ in obedience, He is stripping away. And I found this to be true in my own heart. He's stripping away all of that self-sufficiency and self-dependence. He's exposing idols of the heart. There's no room for you to be able to give your awe to the situations and to the idols that God, that God wants to prevent from you. He wants, to, he wants to be the object of your worship. You're made to worship. But the problem is we gravitate to things that we can hold and that are tangible and not to the God that cannot be seen. We have to lean in with our faith, and sometimes the trials and the winds that come upon you are God's means to take you to himself. He's stripping away any self-reliance that says, I got this. Just had a man testify to that fact in my life. A neighbor I've been praying for for years got cancer. And in his cancer, he was bound to be able to defeat it. I've got this. I'm going to beat it. Strong. Proud. Confident. And as he testified to me, went over to talk to him, said, how you doing? And he said to me, broken, I've had cancer. And he, tears, he began to tell me, I knew I could beat it. But last week I went to the doctor and the cancer's gone. don't know why. And I was able to share with that neighbor why. Maybe it's because, brother, you're not ready to meet him yet. And God is using this situation to get a hold of your attention, to bring you to himself. And he nodded in agreement, maybe so, maybe so. God will take you through times to bring you to a point where you see you would have no way to explain it. He will strip away your self-reliance. And sometimes we need those winds, the tempest, to exercise our faith, to tear off that rotten branch of self-dependence and to root us more firmly in Christ. Why? Because He loves you. Because He loves me. And He wants what's best for us. He wants us to be satisfied and no other thing but Him. Spurgeon says this, he waits, oftentimes, a long time. That is part of the lesson. Do you realize that if you never had a storm, you would never know that he can handle a storm? You would never really understand the power of God on your behalf until you strung out to your extremity because it is in the impossibility of that extremity that you can see his power. He could have just turned around the top of the mountain and hushed the storm. He could have just, uh, shush, and the sea would have been still. But he ran to them, he went out to them, he let them go out in their extremities so that they would learn that in that extreme moment, oh, he is there. First Peter tells us this, doesn't it? It says, "'In this you rejoice, though now for just a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it perishes, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says rejoice, because God is doing something in the midst of this situation to refine your faith and to make it beautiful to him. He goes on, Peter, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoicing. So at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So beloved, do not be surprised at the struggle, at the turmoil, at the situation you're going through. Paul says in Romans 5, we can rejoice in our sufferings. What? Rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces character. And character produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And that's confident assurance in God's Word. That's why James can say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Right? The verse we love and we hate at the same time. But that's what he's after. That's what he wants to produce, and he's faithful, and he will come, and he will pursue you. And it may not be in your perfect timing, but it will be in his perfect timing. And how does he come? Look at verse 25. He comes walking on the sea. Don't skip that. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. And he's showing forth who he is. And he comes walking on the waves. A human can't do that. The very waves that are such a struggle for you to endure, they are no match for your great God. And you need to treasure him for that. And look at verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. The word phantom. And they cried out in fear. They didn't recognize him and they were disillusioned by their fear at this moment. And again, it's something that happens to us as well. And those moments of crisis and the moments of fear, you begin to see things that aren't real. And you begin to doubt the very things that you know that are true. As we know, fear is that false evidence that appears real. So they think that they're seeing this phantom, a sign of their destruction. When in the process of obedience, you get weary, you can start to see the worst. And this is where, folks, your theology has got to kick in. This is why it's so important that we place ourselves under the Word of God regularly, and we build ourselves a biblical theology that is robust, strong to be able to give you courage. When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you are to lay your head. Again, Charles Spurgeon. Sovereignty of God is the pillow in which you're to lay your head. The fear of the Lord leads to, anybody? The fear of the Lord leads to life, and those who have it rest satisfied and will not suffer harm. That's Proverbs 19, 23. You need to write it down, memorize it, because when you're not satisfied and you're all bound up in anxiousness and fear, it's because you are not fearing the one that you should fear. When you fear Him, well, not all our, all our fears are not as fearful. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and those who have it rest satisfied. If you don't have a big enough view of God and understand these passages, passages that we just covered, you can be tempted to see the challenges and the setbacks and the difficulties as His a sign of His abandonment, and you'll walk away from following the Lord. In a book I read uh, several years ago, uh, there was a statement in there that I thought was so strong. And it was trying to be able to speak to the season of life that high school students find them in when they leave and they go off to college. And they experience freedoms that they just now are beginning to explore. And they come outside their own household and now are having to make some of those decisions. And many end up shipwrecking their faith during that season of our life. And one of the things that it said there is that there's two things that can wreck a student's faith. And I will say, it's two things that can wreck anybody's faith. Number one is poor choices. When a believing individual veers off course morally, relationally or ethically, they are immediately confronted with waves of guilt. And there are only two ways to get rid of that guilt. You either ask for forgiveness and change your behavior or you change your belief system. If you can convince yourself there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, then your guilt will be greatly diminished. Changing how you believe is always easier than changing how you behave. So when students change what they believe in order to justify their behavior, it says something about the nature of our faith. Obviously, it was shallow, not rooted in conviction. The second thing that can shatter our faith is unexplainable tragedies. And none of us are immune to those. When one goes through something that doesn't fit their logic or their understanding of the character of God and they can't believe that you can endure this, it would make people walk away. When you can't answer why a good God would allow something bad to happen, you can be tempted to abandon Christianity. So our faith has got to be secure. You need to know that we live in a fallen world Affected by the consequences of sin. This world is broken. But thankfully, God did not leave it in that condition. He is coming again. And He's going to restore all things. Amen? That's why you cling to the cross. At the cross is the moment where you can explain those unforeseen tragedies and those suffering moments that we go through. God was not aloof. He was not blind He was completely aware. Because of the consequences of sin, it has brought dire consequences to our world and to our life. But thankfully, God, in His mercy and compassion, He set forth and He saw the pain and sin and He put in motion very early that I'm going to reverse the consequences of this sin so this won't be the end of the story. And I'm going to become man, take on flesh. I'm going to die for all of sin i'm going to pay the penalty for sin buried and then i'm going to raise again rise again. And, and when jesus rises again he conquers that sin and the consequences of sin for those of us who believe that's what you cling to in those moments of suffering he came he died And he rose again. And because he did, you have a future. You may not see that glory this side of heaven. You may not come through that suffering. You may not get that good report. You may have to endure. But God is faithful. He will carry you through. Back to the text. When they were thinking the worst, verse 27, look at it. Verse 27 says, but immediately, Jesus says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Wow, what a moment here. Jesus speaks to them in the midst of their fear, and they're crying out, it's a ghost. And he says, no, 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 don't fear, I am is here. And he reveals his character to them in this moment. What amazing moment. And Mark's gospel, which is interesting, and that's why we read Exodus a little earlier. Mark's gospel, it says that he intended to pass them by. It took a little while to be able to figure out that one. He intended to pass them by, not that he was wanted to neglect them to be able to just go on and not recognize them, but he wanted to pass by to be able to show them his glory, just as he did for Moses in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to show you my glory. That's his intent in this moment. They're on the sea in struggle and fear, and he is going to say, I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to show them my glory. In the midst of your fear, God comes to you, and he declares who he is if you have ears to hear and turn to him. There's moments in your life where you'll be stifled with fear or anxiety. And those moments, you have to ask yourself, well, Who do I turn to? Who do I turn to when I'm in fear like that? And I want you to hear Jesus saying right here to the disciples, I am the one you turn to. I am. Who do you turn to when you're anxious? I am that's Jesus. And he's saying that to you in the midst of whatever you're going through. I am enough. I am enough in your hurt to turn to. And those are beautiful words to hear. God has been saying that to his people all throughout the scriptures. He said it to Moses. He said, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for the Lord your God goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Amen? God spoke to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. And then he said through the prophet Isaiah, But now, says the Lord, he created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Jesus says, take heart, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After giving the commission, he says, I'm going to give you the commission, I want you to go and make disciples, but I want you to remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, I don't know about you, when you put all that together, it makes you want to jump out and hug Jesus for who he is. And that's what happens to Peter. If it's really you, and he hits it, and he he steps out of the boat, and he does the miraculous. Can you see him? I hope you can see him. It's like, if it's you, command me, and Jesus says, come. And Jesus, and Peter steps out of that boat, and he does the miraculous. He starts walking on the waves. It's a glorious moment. Those few steps were glorious. Supernatural faith over fear. Have you experienced somebody like that? that his supernatural faith over their fear, it is amazing to see. Well, Peter is walking on water. He's overcoming those weary waves and resistance, those burdens of obedience with faith. What a picture. How do we have faith like that? How do I have faith like that? Well, I believe it was love. It was Peter's assurance of Jesus' love for him expressed in Jesus' invitation. And Peter's love for Jesus that expressed itself in faith. Assurance of his love moves us to love him and express itself in fearless faith. Did you get that? Assurance of his love moves us to love him and express itself in fearless faith. I want you to take a moment to take that in because it's beautiful. Savor the moment. Because in the next verse, we see verse 30. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. Ain't that like us, where fear overshadows love. It's like us, so fickle, so like me. I can be so confident that God has given me a word and secure. I know he's true. I know he's true. I know he's got me. I know he's going to go before me. And then the next day... Something happens, and I'm sucking sucking my thumb in the corner. And I'm just absolutely anxious, and I'm a mess. Anybody else like that? Moments that are so inconsistent. I want to be faithful. I want to stand strong. I want to be able to walk on that water and that faith walk. And it takes incredible love. And God wants us to be able to experience what that's like. Peter did the right thing in that moment. As he's beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And that is your go-to. When you don't have anything left, and when you're fearful, and all of a sudden you can't see him anymore, all you see is your situation, you just cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. He recognized his need, and he calls out to his Savior. Well, maybe you've never called on him like that. The Scripture says today is a day of salvation. Look at verse 31. We get the same word that He started this passage with. Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took a hold of Him. And that's point number four. When you have no strength left to go on, He is ready to uphold you. He will hold us fast. We just sang it, right? I want to sing it again. He will hold you fast. In the moment... When you are having to endure that hardship, you don't trust in yourself that you got this. You stop and you go, you know what? He will hold me fast. He's got this. He is faithful and He will not let me go. He will not allow me to be able to experience that. He has got me. You can depend upon Him. There's no delay. He lovingly, Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I can hear that reproof in my own experience. Jesus walks them back to the boat, and the winds cease. Then we get the climax there, the passage, and they worshiped him. They worshiped him, saying, you truly are the son of God. And that is the point. God is faithful, and he will lead us through seasons of our life, that we have to walk by faith. And He wants in those moments for you to experience His faithfulness that leads you to worship and joy. Amen? Oh, church, may we depend upon the faithfulness of God. Your application points very quickly. As you live this life, remember, He is sovereign and He is in control. As you seek to follow him in obedience, he will direct your life for your good and his glory. When you feel no one is supporting you and you're all alone, remember, you have Jesus praying for you. When you experience the difficulty and the challenge as you seek to honor God in your life, realize that he is committed to refining you. And then lastly, when you have no strength left to go on, He is ready to uphold you. His strength is made perfect in your weakness. When you realize this, your faith walk will lead you to worship Jesus. And I hope right now, you are just, and your soul, as my soul, is just declaring, great is your faithfulness, right? Well, thankfully, we have the opportunity To be able to lift our voices and declare that to Him. So, as soon as I pray, we're gonna stand up and we're gonna testify to great is thy faithfulness. And I wanna hear worship. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for a God that is faithful to us, even oftentimes when we're faithless. Oh Lord, you have shown us in this passage that you direct the events of our life, you have an agenda. And it's for your glory. So, Lord, as we looked at this passage, I pray that you would remind us that you are a faithful God and that you will lead us in times to walk by faith so that we can experience who you are. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ here today. Whatever they're going through, Lord, I pray that you would sustain them, that they would sense you praying for them, refining them, and that we would be led to worship my great God. Lord, we thank you. Now may you hear us as we lift our voices and our hearts to you. In Jesus' name.